You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders, past and present, as well as recognise that the area where FBI radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. This week, part two of The Block, an episode from the All The Best archives, which first aired in 2010. This episode was recorded around the time construction began on the controversial Pemmelway project to redevelop The Block, an area of Redfern that provided housing and community for many First Nations people. Last week, we heard about the history of how The Block was established in the 1970s and the strong community that's formed since. If you missed part one, you can listen back on the All The Best podcast feed. This week, we pick up the story heading east from the block down Redfern Street to St. Vincent's Catholic Church. And a warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that this episode may contain names and voices of those who have passed on. And a heads up, there's also references to drug use. As you leave the block and head over the train line, You go past the police station, then you come to a strip of shops. This is Redfern Street. This next story is of strength, separation and losing faith. Gina McEwen takes us up Redfern Street and inside the front gate of the St Vincent de Paul Catholic Church. A lot of the community no longer come because they just can't stomach it. Father Ted led us all to be thinkers and, and critical thinkers and, and suddenly you don't question them at all. Absolutely buggered. No sense of cultural reference and significance, but worse, more importantly, just bugger this parish's traditions and this culture and what it means when just come in and piss all over it. I think it's good to look at this, what they've done. Let's forget the hyperbole and what it means, what they have done. Voices of the Catholic community in Redfern. It's where we head next, to the St Vincent de Paul Catholic Church on Redfern Street. But first, meet Possum. I come down here when I was 16 and I been part of the Redfern for a good, well, good 30, 32 years. I first met Possum as I was walking up Redfern Street one day on my way to St Vincent's Church. While we were talking, he was rolling a cigarette and I didn't even know if he'd ever been to the church. 
But as soon as we started talking about it, Father Ted came up. I, I met Father Ted you know, when, I was, when I was about 18, yeah. You know, he took me into the church and where, we, where all the Aboriginal went, you know, praying all that there and Christians and that. And he was the kind of a man that um, he'd help you out, you know, because you were down and out, you know, give his time. St Vincent's Church is up on the main drag in Redfern. It's a red brick and sandstone building that sits neatly between two other buildings. And it's really the kind of place that you'd probably miss if you weren't looking for it. For over 30 years, Father Ted Kennedy was priest here. Father Ted, he knew a lot of um, alcoholics, drug addicts, you know, and, you know, domestic relationships and all that because he was he'd been there he's seen it all and he he was at the heart of things sometimes you know like i'd you know because i had a alcohol problem i'd i'd go up there and have a yarn with him and he'd talk to me and you know put sense into my head and put me on the right road and that over the 30 years that father ted was at redfern he became very popular with the local community because he aimed to live and practice the teachings of something called the Second Vatican Council, or Vatican II. So what is Vatican II? In very brief terms, it was established in Rome in the early 60s, and it was about modernising the church to make it more inclusive. So instead of the traditional structure of the priest above the people, the community, regardless of their faith, became the focus of the church. It was now less about sin and being preached to, and more about placing the people's welfare before profit, especially those in need. He made the services open to everyone. You know, he didn't select, and if people wanted to interact, they interacted. This is Sister Dom. She's one of the Catholic nuns of Redfern. You know, he was open. He, he was ready to listen to everyone. And he learned from everyone. The idea was Mass was now a community activity involving everyone, which meant the church should no longer intimidate people with all the traditional marble and gold finishings. Apparently Ted had made some pretty drastic changes to the inside of the church to emulate this idea. Ted would never have the floors covered because he felt they were as close as the, the poor. You don't, you don't want to keep the poor away. This is Sister Pat. She's been a part of Redfern Church for 24 years. Well, Ted certainly brought, brought the altar around. And then the altar used to be that way, with the priest at the back of the people. The whole idea was that we'd be around the altar as, as equals around the altar. He did his own way of things, which brought, which brought a lot of people into his church. You know, the, every Sunday the, the church would be packed with a lot of people, you know, when Father Ted was there. Black, white, you know, all different races. And um, it was just a happy communal. We all, at the end of the service, have a cup of tea, cup of coffee, have a good yarn. We get to know each other. But now, um, none, no, no, you know, not, no people go up there in Adelaide to communicate and see each other anymore. In 2005, Father Ted died after a long illness. But now he's, he's passed away now and the church, as it is, it's not the church it used to be when he was, when he was there. It all 
changed. It's just a negative one, full of guilt and power and authority and just quite insulting to anybody who does any thinking. It's the difference between a hierarchical domination and relationship. And that's what Vatican II desperately tried to get through. So I think he's frightened by this community because they are a very thinking community. The new priest Sister Pat is talking about is Father Clécio Mendes. He's a priest from Brazil who's been working at the church for a couple of years now. Father Clécio has been labelled as a conservative who's come into a parish that has a long history of being more vernacular. Father Ted led us all to be thinkers and critical thinkers and, and suddenly you don't question them at all. Yeah, I didn't like his image of God. When Father Clécio arrived at the church, he wasn't happy with what he saw. There was no crucifix behind the altar, the lectern wasn't being used, there were no carpets on the ground, and people used to talk to him during Mass. They'd actually call out to him to talk about issues in the community. This had been something they'd done with Ted. Father Clessio felt there were things that needed to change. I wanted to meet with Father Clessio to talk about what was going on. It did take a lot of convincing to get him to meet with me, as he's still at odds with some of the locals. But after a while, he finally agreed. I met him at the front gate of the church early one afternoon. He's a short guy, wears frameless glasses, and he's very neat and clean-shaven. He has a warm smile, but he was mumbling a little bit and seemed somewhat nervous with me at first. We walked into the church. It was empty and very quiet. I follow him into a small room at the back of the church, which is filled with shelves of soup tins, and then into a smaller room with two chairs. This is the sacristy. We sit down in the chairs, and he tells me about why he thought things needed to change from the way they were with Father Ted. He was, I really believe he started with very good heart to help the poor. But I think there was a moment he lost control because, okay, let us do a revolution. Let us change the things. Let's try to please the people, everyone. Uh, it's impossible to please the people. You have 10, ten people, 10 different ideas. Cannot be like this. The church didn't ask for this. Even though his accent is heavy, his message is clear. People cannot just pick and choose parts of the religion that suit them. Clessio thinks the way Redfern Church was practising became too flexible through Vatican II. The church had involved people who weren't Catholic and basically allowed the community to promote their own ideas through the church. He thinks Ted lost control. He tells me about how Father Ted used to give up the presbytery to give homeless people a place to sleep in winter, and this included his own bed. These people had used the presbytery however they liked, according to Clessio, and he thinks this is unacceptable. If the church becomes a supermarket, OK, let's please everyone, it's impossible because you're never going to please everyone. Always will come someone and say, no, no, I don't like this, it's better like this. No, no, no. And the church has to say, no, no, wait a moment. Jesus Christ said, you come follow me, not that I will follow you. If you really want to become a Christian, you have to follow him. Father Clessier remembers when he first arrived in Redfern, he was told, this is an Aboriginal church, to which he responded, no, this is a Catholic church. Clessier believes the way he's currently running things will save the people of Redfern. He thinks it's a trap for a church to become too relative to its community. If the church just accepts everyone, regardless of faith, it becomes flexible in its practice. It's then likely to neglect instilling the word of God in its people 
and simply provides them with temporary relief. He says this is what happened with Father Ted. Father Clessio's anguish is that the people of Redfern Church may never find what he calls the real happiness. Because at the end, you can bring these people, you can make them happy for a while, but they are not, you're not bringing them to the real happiness, that is to find Jesus Christ. Here I don't see fruits of the Holy Spirit, works from God. Here I don't see. You don't see it in Redfern? I don't see. If these people are fruit of this Father Terry I don't see the Holy Spirit there. So one Sunday, I went back to Redfern Church to see for myself what had changed. In the midst of all the people who would suffer retribution, in the midst of all this, the prophets... There's about 30 people inside, seated in a space for about 200. The Catholic nuns of Redfern are all sitting together on one side of the altar. Sister Pat, Dom, Mary and Esme. And other people are just scattered in twos and threes across the pews. At the end of the service, Father Clessio made a quick exit to the sacristy after giving me a brief nod and a smile. The mood in the room was pretty tense. Yeah, hello. Yeah, well, my name is Jack Callaghan and I'm uh, 78 years of age. Still got a bit of life left in me and I've been coming here to Redfern for over 25 years or more. Jack's got white hair, steady gaze and he stands tall. He asked me if I'd like to have a tour of the church. He takes me over to a picture of Father Ted hanging on the wall behind the altar. Now Ted's photo, they wanted us to pull that down, right? We had a great fight over that and that's bolted to the wall. Okay. And that's not uncommon in Australian churches to have a photograph of long-term pastors. Then Jack showed me the lectern. It looked to me like any normal varnished wood lectern. Jack told me Ted had barely used one, but Father Clessier had put it back. It had then disappeared, and Clessier had put in another one. Then that one disappeared, and this kept on happening. Then suddenly something Sister Mary had told me about a little while ago made sense. The podium, yeah, the podium, which we tried to get rid of several times, burnt it, but it kept coming back, and then finally they... They nailed it and drilled it into the so that it got to be sitting up on a little um. Yeah, pedestal. you got rid of it. Did you used to take it out? Some of the men. Some yeah. of the men would take it. Out. The men it made a very good firewood for the up on men people on the block on a cold night. <laughs> As I kept walking around the church with Jack, he pointed to a large slab of grey stone about one metre wide and tall that had been roughly shaped into a square with a basin carved into its top. It had a large pink shell from the Pacific Ocean sitting on it. Jack told me it's the baptismal font. He said the parishioners came into the church one day and found the font dumped up the back amongst the old furniture. It was removed as it was deemed ugly by the new clergy. The baptismal font was eventually put back as it holds great significance for the local Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. 
Jack kept on showing me more and more things that had changed in the church. Absolutely bugged No sense of cultural reference and significance, but worse, more importantly, just bugger this parish, its traditions and its culture and what it means. We just come in and piss all over it. I think it's good to look at these, what they've done. Let's forget the hyperbole and what it means, what they have done. Father Clessio finds it sad that the community don't understand what he's doing. He finds strength in the idea that he is saving the people of Redfern. Being that he thinks it's a trap for a parish to try to satisfy the many needs of its community, he must first instill the word of God. This, he believes, will bring real relief to those in need. I had only visited this church for mass once or twice both times when Clessio was there. So I wondered how many people from Ted's time still came. So you just don't, you don't still go anymore? No, no. Uh, when, when Father Ted left, uh, he just left a, a massive hole can't be filled by him. And I don't think this uh, new preacher really understands, you know. A lot of the community no longer come because they just can't stomach it. It's not a nice routine. And um, we, we go, oh, it's, not, it's not an enjoyable experience, but it, you, you go to support the community. The ones who do come. You still go on a Sunday. Yeah. We support each other. Yes. I think I think our our role in Redfern is to allow people to be themselves, to be themselves, to find their own pace of life, their own rhythm in life, and in that way, they will, if their head and their heart are together they will be united with God, with the spirit or whatever. I don't think Catholicism has anything to do with it. They'd probably be sacked. <laughs> One would think that the church should be able to relate to its community. Well, if it doesn't, what's it doing there? Ask me, what's it doing there? Gina McEwen speaking with Sister Dom, a Catholic nun of Redfern. You're on All the Best on FBI. My name's Eliza Salos, and as we walk out onto Redfern Street again, we meet Mahalia and make our way back down to the block. Hi, my name's Mahalia. I've lived on and off on the block for about, oh, for about nearly 30 years on and off. <laughs> yeah, so um, I was only about three or four years of age when I come there and um, 
grew up there and about seven or eight we moved out to western suburbs and come back in back and forwards other relatives still lived in redfern all their lives and yeah it's like a meeting place like where they all come from the country and they all come there to redfern and meet up with all their families and that and gathering and so yeah sort of like a bit of an experience here Oh, it was great in the block when I was young. Everyone, all family around, they all looked after each other. Everyone, you know, just doesn't matter whose family it was, they all just took in other people's kids and looked after them and sort of all stuck together and that. So, yeah. I sort of basically left sort of when the drugs sort of came into it and that. So, I sort of didn't experience much here with the drugs. But, yeah, it's, um, yeah. Just a lot of change heaps when all the you, younger generation now using heroin and everything like that, and block just got just got a lot of people coming to the block and using heroin and ODs and stuff like that, and just went downhill. But before many years ago, it was really really good. All the people, all the old elders that we all knew have all passed on now and that, and it's all new generation now, and it's. It's not the same like it was many years ago with this new generation here now, but the older generation would have been, would all try and keep all the family together and that. Yeah, so it's all just changed now, it's not the same. I've had a pretty good time growing up here and, and that sort of thing, yeah. But it's a shame that the block's gone now. That's sort of like home, you know, <laughs> I miss it sort of thing. It's not the same anymore. Yeah. We still sort of all come and meet around somewhere, but not down the block anymore, it's not the same, but we all still sort of gather up around in the street here. Mm. Uh, miss it anyway, but I suppose you've got to move on in life anyway, but yeah, there's nothing you can really do anyway now, so yeah, just only memories now. <laughs> yeah, so. The block was the first urban land rights claim, so ideas of ownership are particularly loaded with political and cultural significance. The community is divided between those who support the redevelopment and some who disagree with parts of the project. In our next piece, we hear from Aboriginal housing company CEO Michael Mundine, who has been instrumental with the redevelopment plans. Well, see, people got to realise too, like, the land is belongs to the Aboriginal Housing Company Limited, right? Uh, and we have got 100 members. Now, the members are the shareholders. They're the only one got the right to voice their opinion with this community. Not every individual Aboriginal people. And I think we had the problem in the past that because it's Aboriginal housing company, Aboriginal land, every individual people, don't care where they are, come here and think they got a say in this community. Really, it's, 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 it's like any organisation, any company. Members got the right to say and what to, to, to do in their own community. Michael Mundine or Mick Mundine as he is known around the block, has worked for the Aboriginal Housing Company since 1975 and became CEO in 1983. For a lot of that time, he has held a grand vision for the area. I mean, my family said, Mickey, get out of us 10, 15 years ago. You're never going to do it. But I believe that, I believe that you know, you've got a destiny in life. And I believe the Lord put you in, put you in that position. And if it's my destiny to come here and, and, and do what I'm doing, well, man, you know... I, I believe the script has been written for this community years ago. Mick talks about seeing the block blossom in the 80s as a caring and sharing community. He also talks of the devastating effect drugs and alcohol had on the community in the 90s. Our block, the block, it became, it became the Blackfoot graveyard. You know, like you know about the Hillifin graveyard. They go home to die. 
This is how this place was becoming. We had people dying, ODing, you know, people getting shot, people getting murdered. We cannot let it happen no more. And we had to stand up at the happening and people say, no more. We can't let our people suffer. Mick has developed a new plan to build a new community, including 62 houses, a new gym, an art gallery and cultural centre, as well as a retail precinct. But to do that, most of the existing block would have to be demolished. Well, the demolition started last week. Out of 14 people, we got three left to be relocated. Uh, that'll happen in, in due time. Like, we're not going to put no pressure. We, we'll, we'll make sure that every individual tenant get a, a, a good affordable housing outside this area. The most contentious part of this proposal is deciding who will come back to the new houses. Mick is talking about the relocation that has been happening. The families currently living in the block are being moved into new housing, mainly around Waterloo. But not all are guaranteed a return to the new community. It's all depend on their tenants' history. If you've been a good tenant, not detrimental to this organisation, you know, automatically you'll come back. But if you've done the wrong thing by the company, or known to be a drug seller, or drug in drug like a drug house, you know, you know, I, I think in their own heart and mind they shouldn't even think of coming back here. And it is this that has attracted most of the media attention. When you interview Mick, he's feisty, passionate and ready to rebut any concern you may have. He's sure that this is the right thing to do. Though I said to a, a couple other media people, I said, look, this privilege is with an, an individual people. OK, we might, we, we might be knocking down, we'll be knocking down brick and mortar. Change the community, but the the, the true uh, uh, spirit and soul, the soul, heart and soul, is an individual people. They bring that back here. It's never going to change. It's really up to individual people, human people, uh, the, themselves, to make sure that that spirit never changes. And and you know, you can knock down a building. That's not human. It's not a human being. It's only just brick and mortar. But it's just within individual people. They carry on that heart and soul. In our program today, we've heard stories from people who have an incredibly strong connection to Redfern and the block. It's hard to see some of these places as just brick and mortar. The success or failure of the block's redevelopment will ultimately be the legacy Mick Mundine leaves the community. Whether that's a legacy the community wants or will be thankful for is hard to know. A lot of people like changes. And because changes are happening, you think, oh wait, is he doing the right thing? You're sure you're not ripping us off, you're sure you're not selling the block. See, a lot of people think we're selling the block. A lot of people think our developers moving and taking another block. That's all crap. This block will never be sold. It's by our constitution. The block will never be sold because, you see, for our people to build good, affordable housing on it. It never be sold, but you tell them people out there like talking to this wall. Seriously, you know? They don't care whatever you say. So until people visualise things, they, they sort of don't believe. Like you take uh, when we knock in the first lot of housing in Neville Street or Louis Street of the first lot and they say, oh, they're going to jump in front of the bulldozer, do this, do that. And then, but when they when we knock them down and lay the turf, they, then they say, oh, gee, that's nice. So, uh, you know, may, uh, maybe it's people in general. You know, people somehow they don't believe or want to believe until they visualise something happening or they see it in writing. That's... Maybe just life, I don't know. Mick Mundine, CEO of the Aboriginal Housing Company. He's heading up the redevelopment of the block. To end our show today, we walk just around the corner from the Aboriginal Housing Company to Caroline Street. Two of the Catholic nuns of Redfern still live here, as they have done for years, in a small two-storey terrace called Gathering Place. We stand with Sister Mary looking out over Chippendale toward the city. 
with the Aboriginal flag mural in front of us at the bottom of the hill. The demolition has already started happening. Yeah, there used to be houses all down here. See, they're all, they're all being demolished now. The people are gone. The meeting place is gone. That's what you miss most. Yeah, they'd be all around here. They'd be sitting everywhere. Groups of them all over the place. In the new plans that they showed us, they've got a meeting place, like a, a meeting room or a, I suppose a place where they could meet. God, instead of a meeting site. But it's way down there, that end of the... Of the uh, and, and they don't want to be down there, they want to be up here because this is where people arrive from. Yeah. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Mum. Morning. Morning. Um, yeah, people arrive, say, by train or they come that way. And, and so they, that's why they sit in these, all these places. It's because they see them when they first arrive. Oh, bugger all. But isn't it not interesting to see the, the, the growth coming out of the middle of the flag down there? See the, see the, the grass growing from the, from the crack there in the wall? Or, the, or some little shrub or whatever, you see it? So something will happen. It's a sign of life, isn't it? Life will go on. That was part two of The Block, an episode which originally aired back in 2010. We chose to share this episode with you as part of our retrospective series, as although the stories were recorded 12 years ago, they remain incredibly relevant today. The destruction of areas of cultural significance for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and more specifically, the growing inaccessibility of Redfern to those who have found home, family and community in the area is an ongoing issue in 2022. We've posted links to some actions fighting for affordable housing and fighting evictions in our show notes. This episode featured stories produced by Gina McEwen and Jesse Cox. Eliza Salos presented the episode and Gina McEwen was the supervising producer. You've been listening to All the Best on FBI 94.5. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.